everyone, and welcome to the You Press Play News Podcast, Episode 7. My name's Natalia. I'm the news editor. I'm Jillian. I'm the copy desk chief. Uh, I'm Michael. I'm a contributing writer. And on today's topics, we have FAU dorm, alum donation, voter shooting, Brazil's COVID-19 response, and sanctions on China. Our first subject of the week is FAU's new dorm. Students who have been at FAU for a couple of years may be familiar with Algonquin Hall, which was located near the Student Union and was demolished in 2019. Since its demolition, the university has been building a new dorm in its place. FAU just announced that the dorm, which will open in fall 2021, will be called Atlantic Park Towers. The options are fairly similar to the current dorm. Students can choose between units composed of four single bedrooms and two baths, two single bedrooms and one bathroom, and two shared double rooms with one bathroom. In other dorm buildings on campus, there's usually only one shared kitchenette on like the first floor, or if you're paying for one of the nicer apartments, there's a kitchenette in every suite. But this one will actually have a community kitchenette on every floor, which I wish they had when I was a freshman. <laughs> um, the dorm will also have the typical accommodations like study lounges, community laundry, um, Wi-Fi access, and other stuff. So uh, is this one going to be, is this a little more fancier than the ones they already have or what? I haven't seen pictures of the inside, but honestly, just based on the kitchenette fact alone, yeah. I'm going to assume yes, at least just a little bit. Um, yeah, because sharing like one kitchen for the entire building was always incredibly difficult. Yeah, see, I was reading our script and I was like, I thought I had that wrong. I was, so you, you shared an entire kitchen for a whole dorm building oh yeah. my god okay <laughs> see that's why that's why i don't stay on campus but uh, yeah that uh, was rough i uh i had no idea what it was like because i i never wanted to um stay on campus because i'm pretty close and i can commute but um i'm happy for the kids that are gonna stay on there you know it'll be probably better for them and uh maybe they'll um remodel some of the other ones down the line mm-hmm. so actually i'm putting up the uh, fau housing website right now a couple of days ago, they did not have this information up, but now they do. But apparently, the single one of the single rooms is four thousand eight hundred and eighty-five dollars. I'm assuming this is either the um, this is the one that has like the one uh, one bedroom per student. The other room is the four thousand seven hundred and fifty, which I'm assuming that's the shared one. And then you have the 3,900 per semester double room, which I'm assuming is the one that's two people in one bedroom and then one bath. Yeah, and the double, but it's not just like one double room with one bathroom, it's two double rooms. Oh, two so you ha- rooms. it's four people to one bathroom. Oh, okay. I was going to say, um, that's... That's per semester, right? That price. That's that's not too yes. bad. I mean, you you would pay a lot more for an apartment, probably. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. that's why I stayed on campus for my first couple of years. I mean, up until the pandemic, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, it's pretty doable, especially when you have scholarships. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, you, you know, if you get the Pell scholarship or any other type of money, you could probably get that pretty easily. I mean, and then if you're staying on campus, you're on the meal plan and stuff too. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely cheaper than rent in Boca. So. Well, I'm glad they're they're making them nicer though. I've never been in any of the dorms or anything. I really only go to campus to go to class or get anything done, uh, get stuff done that I need to get done. So um, maybe they'll do more of this stuff. Hopefully, you know, they get more funding or whatever. Hopefully, they'll make some more nicer ones. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that'd be nice. The freshman dorms are not super great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's messed up, you know? I mean, <laughs> just because you're new doesn't mean you shouldn't get, like, I don't know, acceptable, nice housing, you know what I mean? But. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about one of the latest donations given to FAU. The School of Architecture recently received a donation of $500,000 from the alumna Tabitha Point, who graduated from the School of Architecture in, 20, er, in 2008 and is the founder and CEO of Point Health, a real estate development company. The donation was gifted to FAU to create the Point Health Fellowship in Healthcare Building and Design Endowed Fund. The fellowship allows for students interested in healthcare architecture to intern at Point Health for the summer of 2022 and will also provide an annual scholarship of $7,500. So that's a nice scholarship. That's probably the largest monetary scholarship that I uh, have ever seen, other than like the really, really big ones, you know, that like give you a full ride. What is healthcare architecture exactly? It's kind of like a weird, like, <laughs> that's my question. Yeah, it's like a very specific type of architecture. It's basically just like designing hospital buildings and doctor's offices and stuff. The goal is to make the hospitals as efficient as possible for healthcare work. Um, so that's the whole point. So it's a very, very specific goal and type of architecture. Okay, yeah, that answers it for me. Because I, when I was reading it, I was like, that sounds cool. And that, that's a lot of money, um, 500 grand for... Um, Cause we're not the biggest school down here you know what i mean 500 grand is a lot of money and uh internship in the summer of 22 total uh that yeah that's pretty cool actually um i just i just didn't know when i read it what um what the major actually was i was like healthcare architecture i've never heard of that yeah that's pretty interesting i didn't know that was um like of such a specific field until i read the article written by marcy so it's very interesting so up next, our next topic is the voter shooting. So this past week, a gunman opened fire in a Colorado supermarket called King Supers in Boulder, killing 10 people in total. According to the Associated Press, investigators are still working to determine his motive for the shooting, but they don't know why the gunman specifically chose King Supers or what led him to carry out this mass attack. The news that is coming out is that he brought a firearm at a local gun store after passing a background check. And he also had a second weapon on him when he carried out the shooting. And I feel like we talk about this every single podcast. We're talking about a shooting. Last week we were talking about the Atlanta shooting. Now we're talking about a Colorado shooting. I feel like it's happening almost every single week. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, we talked about this last week uh, before this happened, and um, we talked about how we'd like to see restrictions on uh, assault-style weapons, even though the, the spa shootings were uh, done with a handgun. So um, my, my issue with this is that this guy bought this gun, I think, five days before he did this. And how insane of a turnaround is that to you, you could just buy a gun that quickly? And then, you know what I mean? Um, I don't I don't know what we can do, you know, to, I mean, I, I know what we can do to stop this, but it, it, it's just crazy. That was the craziest part to me. And, and I don't know if you guys saw like a day or so later up, up in Georgia, some guy, a, 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 um, a good Samaritan, he, he heard someone loading a weapon in a bathroom stall 
and evacuated the building. So this almost happened again, like two days later in Georgia. Um, you know, it, I don't think people understand that these, these assault rifle style weapons, even when they're in single shot mode, how easy they are to shoot, um, how much damage you can cause with them. I used to shoot for uh, fun at the range and my brother has an AR-15 and it's easier to shoot than any handgun I've ever shot in my life. Uh, I, I think you could teach a teenager to shoot it and be accurate with it, honestly. And um, just because they're single shot doesn't really mean anything. I mean, my brother was a soldier. They shoot them in single shot in war. So uh, I just, I don't know why we need, a civilian needs to have these weapons. So also uh, kind of some background information on this. Colorado has universal background check laws that cover almost all type of gun sales, but misdemeanor convictions generally do not prevent people from purchasing weapons in Colorado. Well, what's more, what's even more devastating is when you think about the fact that uh, Colorado had an, a had a ban on assault weapons, and the NRA filed a case against them and had the ban removed only days before this shooting happened. Well, I was going to say too, what, what's upsetting um, about this one in particular is, um, I mean, why can't there be like courses that you have to take or, a, or an evaluation that you have to pass? If you don't want to ban the weapons, because we know how complicated that is, um, but if you don't want to ban the weapons, why can't there be a psychological evaluation? Why can't there be a waiting period? I understand that this probably varies state to state, and I'm ignorant probably of certain things, and I know everyone's gun laws are different. They're stricter in New York and California and stuff. But um, what's scary about this is that this guy bought this rifle completely legally, um, and there was no, you know, no issue with that. I saw that the owner of the store that sold him the gun is cooperating fully. You know, he's not at fault. He, you know, the guy got it and passed whatever checks there were that exist right now and then went and did this a couple days later. But that's what's really scary about it to me, honestly. So also, like, there's also this whole entire conversation that's to be had about, you know, like, um, military-style weapons. Like, even though he wasn't, um, like, what is considered a military-style weapon? Because even a regular handgun can turn into a military-style weapon with, you know, um, all these other extras that you can add into it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting conversation. I, I definitely think that these these uh, assault rifle style weapons can do the most damage. Like I said, just from my background as someone who has went to the range and has shot guns in his life, I've shot rifles, I've shot shotguns, I've shot handguns, revolvers, and I've shot the AR-15. The AR-15 is hands down the easiest one to shoot and the easiest one to operate. It weighs next to nothing it, it shoots center mass every time uh and just because it's single shot doesn't even mean anything you know what i mean you there's so many rounds in the magazine i i just don't know why and, and like i said i'm saying this to someone who used to go to the range and shoot for fun you know with my brother um and and my brother is a vet and everything and um and and he likes to collect these firearms and stuff but i don't know why a civilian needs to have them like i said i mean it, the nra argues that because it's in single shot mode that it's not a weapon of war, but they ignore that in war, US soldiers fire these weapons in single shot mode to save ammunition and to be more accurate. So um, 
I know they're probably not going to end up, ever end up banning these rifles or, or handguns or anything like that. Uh, that would ideally be the thing to do. But in, in my opinion, at least, uh, I, I understand some people disagree and, and I'm willing to listen to that side of the argument. But um, just stricter background checks, man. You know, I, 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 I don't have a problem with anyone that's not going to cause harm having a weapon. You know what I mean? But it, it, buying a gun and then you get it five days later, that's insane. I mean, you can't even get something that you bought on a website that quickly. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah, I was gonna say you brought up a really interesting point earlier about doing like almost classes or something if you want to buy one of these assault style weapons. And I think that's really interesting because I mean, when I had to get my driver's license, and I know it, it's different, like depending on where you live, but I had to take like a class and I was in driver's ed for like a few weeks um and I spent a lot of time there and doing that before I could actually get behind the wheel so obviously it's different but I think it would make sense almost to do something like that I'm sure it would be considered a major pain to plenty of people and not an ideal situation but um, it's a really interesting point that you brought up yeah, I, I um I had an idea about this yesterday. I, I was talking to my girlfriend about it, and 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 I understand that this might logistically be hard to implement or something like that. But um, I was thinking, you know, psych psychological evaluations before you buy any firearm, not just an assault rifle, because we saw the spa shootings was with the handgun, but also you know training courses. So you do you know maybe six, maybe eight weeks, sort of like driver's ed or or any other thing where you're trained to use something. And then, you know, at any time, even the gun instructor can say, okay, you're, you're not fit to, to own this weapon. You know what I mean? Like if, if red flags pop up or whatever, because I just think what we have now is not working. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to be scared to, um, to go into a store. And I, I felt really bad for that kid on the news. I don't know if you guys watched it. That stuff was really hard to watch. I had to turn off the TV. But he said, I almost got killed for getting a, for, you know, trying to get a soda. And it's like, how many times a day do we run into a store for five minutes? And, and when does this affect us or someone we know? You know what I mean? How, how many times does this have to happen, basically? And uh, I guess I'm cynical because, you know, this has just been happening my whole life. But I, I wonder what you guys would feel. Would that be like a middle ground, like, um, like psychological checks or maybe the, the even like you have to do a gun course through the you know what I mean? And I know that that would be different from state to state because Florida, you could just go buy a gun from someone, another owner. It's very easy to trade them and stuff. And it's easy to do it in other states too, like Arizona. So um, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I think it's, there's this very, I think it's one of those things that's very, you can't try to take it away 100%. But you can't just let it be openly free because, yes, people deserve the right to bear arms, but that comes at a price like the right to bear arms. What way? And it questions like, what does that mean? Right to bear arms? Does that mean military style weapons? What does that mean? Because anything you use can be considered a weapon. Well, what I think is really interesting, and I saw this point brought up the other day somewhere, is the Constitution says um, you have the right to a well-regulated militia. And I think that's a very interesting little tidbit because people like to say, oh, we have the right to bear arms and we have the right to, you know, have our militia. But 
I think that little snippet about well-regulated is really interesting. Um, and while I, I agree that we everyone does have the right to bear arms and we all have the right to protect ourselves, I think if we're going to ban anything, it should be assault weapons. Um, like Michael said, there's no reason um, for a citizen to have one, but I guess if we were going to try to compromise some you know, extensive classes would be one way to do it. I was going to say too. Um, what one thing that's that's interesting about the uh, like banning an assault weapon? People say, well, you can't ban assault weapons, and we see these shootings every year. I mean, I, I saw a statistic that there were seven in seven days at one point, and um, not all of them get publicized, which is kind of terrible because they happen so often. So they they don't even get uh, not all of them even get news coverage. But um, things that are less harmful than assault weapons have been banned. Cities down here, um, Miami, they've banned dogs that have harmed less people than guns. And, uh, you know, the, when the Constitution, the Second Amendment was written, those people couldn't fathom uh, assault weapons, uh, semi-automatic weapons. They had muskets, you know, they were fighting they, for, their, for their freedom from, you know, tyranny, from British tyranny. So they were really, um, I think, kind of, it was really important for them to be able to have a well-regulated militia and bear arms and things like that. But the, the idea that the Constitution is sacred and can never be changed is ridiculous. We've made amendments to it all the time. The founding fathers are flawed people. Um, a lot of our laws that were written into the Constitution at first are flawed. So this is the idea that this can't be changed fundamentally is, is weird to me because we've changed a lot of other things. And, and this is quickly becoming a problem, you know? I mean, I mean it's, it was a problem 10 years ago. It's, 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 a, it's just a problem, you know? Um, I just, I don't know what anyone ever is ever going to do about it, how many times you have to see this for it to, to sink in, you know? Yeah, it's a great point that you bring up about how these days a lot of people, particularly on the conservative end, look at the Constitution as infallible. Um, and I remember I saw a post on Twitter and it was like, it was a discussion about the Constitution or something of the sort. And um, a black woman retweeted it and she said, the founding fathers didn't even think it was a person when they wrote this document. Um, and that's a simple statement and it's a powerful one and it's a true one. So I think that's a, it's a perspective that a lot of people don't take that slavery was perfectly acceptable. And there were so many horrendous things going on at the time that it, times change and the constitution should be able to keep up. I, I agree with that completely. You know, it, it, just like anything else, it evolves with, with our times and and I see the argument that if we're not armed, then the government can just take over. And I think we saw in protests this past year and stuff that the government kind of can just do that anyway. A, a militia isn't beating the combined might of the U.S. government and its military. You know what I mean? I, I don't, they have tanks. They have trucks that are basically tanks. They have limitless reserves, you know, uh, that argument also doesn't hold sway to me. Like, I, I, I'm not even against the right to bear arms, and I don't think that owning a gun is inherently a red flag or anything. Like I said, I, I shot for sport growing up, you know, I mean, I, I used to like going to the range, and I have no issue with anyone that's responsible doing that, but I just think it's it's wild how easy it is for these guns to get into the hands of, of people that want to do harm with them, and, and we see each shooter seems to be um, not quite right, you know, they, they, they usually have some type of problem or um, something that if there was some type of vetting process that you would think that it would get caught. Yeah, and even 
that's what that's why I feel like these assault weapons should be banned altogether because what if someone doesn't have some outward problem and they're just racist and really good at hiding it you know what I mean or they just really want to kill some people and they're good at hiding it that's why it's just so tricky yeah I was gonna say uh in Las Vegas I know that that seems like forever ago but that wasn't that long ago that guy was a millionaire who had everything to be happy about and then he shot all those people and he had and they still don't know why he did that no one knows and he you know, just one day that just happened. So I, I'm not trying to min, uh, simplify this. I, I don't know that there's an equal, like an, an easy solution. You know what I mean? Um, I do think that we have a lot of politicians that, that bow to the NRA and things like that. Um, and I know that that's a huge money pipeline and things like that. And I, I also get that, you know, the movements in the last couple of years have made dents in that. We've seen that. I, I don't, if you guys follow like uh, the March for Our Lives, like stuff that David Hogg and those guys have done. Uh, has really, I think, made a, um, a difference. Um, but I don't know. There's no easy solution to this. I, I do think that the easy solution would be to ban assault-style weapons, uh, weapons like that. Um, I, like I said, I say that as someone who has shot them. I know just how much damage they can do, just how easy they are to use, um, just how easy they are to get. Uh, that would be maybe a good starting point. But if you're not willing to do that, then we definitely need to have some checks and balances in maybe you take a class or whatever, you know what I mean? We need to get licensed to do a lot of things in our life. Maybe there needs to be a more thorough licensing course to get a gun or safety or something of, of that sort. I, I don't know. Yeah, that would be one way to do it. Up next, so in the last couple of you press play episodes, we talked a lot about the COVID-19 vaccine in general and a little bit about the response from the United States and the Trump administration and everything. But with that being said, we haven't really talked about the responses from other countries. So if you've been kind of following along with the news recently, Brazil is having a horrible, horrible turnout with the COVID-19 response. So in a CNN article, the governor of Sao Paulo called João Doria said that the president of Brazil, which is Jair Bolsonaro, is a psychopathic leader due to his COVID response. Doria said, we are in one of those tragic moments in history when millions of people pay a high price for having an unprepared and psychopathic leader in charge of a nation. The president of Brazil has repeatedly opposed lockdowns and restrictive measures and has also criticized the mayors and the governors that are implementing these measures Nearly every Brazilian state has an ICU, which is the intensive care unit, of 80% or higher. Some of them are at 90 already. Some of them don't even have space anymore, according to our recent CNN analysis of state data. Hospitals and ICUs are in grave state, as the number has tripled, and this month they would open 12 field hospitals. Doris said that much of the deaths could have been avoided if Bolsonaro had acted with the responsibility that the position gives him. So as someone that is Brazilian-American, American-Brazilian, however you want to put it, I've always kind of grown up with the watching the Brazilian news, whether it was my parents just talking about it or my parents just watching the Brazilian news called Jornal Nacional, which is the uh, one of the Brazilian news channels. 
um, that's always on. It's always on every single night. And it's just completely insane because I went to Brazil in summer of last year. Everybody was wearing masks. I would walk out. You know, I would go into the store. They would be taking your temperature. In some places, they would do it either on the forehead or on the wrist, which I didn't know you could take your temperature on the wrist like that. And in some places, they even have like the, um, they had hand sanitizer, but like you would step your foot on it and the hand sanitizer would like dispense on your hand. It was very cool. But then when I went in November, I went for like Thanksgiving weekend and then I went back for the holiday season in December, there were people already going out without masks. I was going to say, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, because you, you know more about Brazil than me, but it seems like uh, everyone that is uh, Brazilian American that I talk to, they're really, really, uh, they're really opposed to everything politically that is going on at the higher levels of Brazil's government right now, with stuff like this, especially. I, 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 this isn't the first time I've heard Bolsonaro referred to as a madman or a crazy person. Um, I mean, I remember months ago hearing about that on the news, and um, I, I don't know. It, it's just weird. Uh, I know that uh, Richard, who's our sports editor, talked the other day about how he 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 thinks that a lot of Brazilians are going to get out to vote to get Bolsonaro out in a couple years. I think it's 2022, correct? Um, but it's just crazy. Um, we've seen that, you know, it, it's not any politician's fault that this virus happened, but we see that response matters. And especially in places in Brazil that are densely populated, Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, places like that, um, you know, if you don't have measures in place to curb this stuff, it can spread so quick and lead to, you know, so much death. And, and, and you know, I know Brazil has problems with income inequality and things like that. And it just makes it even worse. You know, it, it's going to hurt the people that can't afford it the worst, I feel like. Um, so I, I, I haven't understood his response, Bolsonaro's response to this the entire time. It just seems like complete craziness. That's, that's as an outsider looking in. But um, I, I, like I said, I'm not as knowledgeable about Brazil as you or Richard or anyone that has family there or anything. I don't wanna, please correct me if I'm out of pocket, but um, yeah, it just seems just wild just watching from afar, you know what I mean? And, and it's, I, I've, man, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so to kind of like add to what you said, um, yeah, like he is kind of like a madman, that's what people say, um, but he also, there was at one point, he, I think it was July, it was, yeah, it was July, he actually caught COVID, and he just, it just flew out of him, he didn't care about it, kind of like Trump, where he says, yeah, I'm fine, nothing, it's just a little bit of a flu, um, but also in the last couple of weeks, he actually criticized people that were like complaining about um, COVID-19. He's like, stop whining about it. Jeez, I can't imagine telling someone to stop whining about a deadly illness. <laughs> Jeez. Um, I was going to ask, because I'm not particularly well-versed in Brazil's politics either, what made the difference between last summer and December? Why did people seem to care so much and be so vigilant back then, but not so much now. I don't have a 100% response to that because it varies by people, but it's mostly because after a while, people kind of like here, people got 
tired of it, kind of got tired of the restrictions. And also, you know, Bolsonaro kind of just said, you know, started criticizing governors for implementing these measures. So it's kind of like, you can only do so much when you have a president that's this crazy. Yeah, I would agree with that. As far as like the um, the, the fatigue thing with the restrictions, I mean, I, everyone's tired of, of the restrictions, you know what I mean? Everywhere. Uh, and I think that th this shows kind of what people at the top of a country, they're, what, what leaders say matters, uh, even, you know, to, I mean, if the president of a country or the chancellor of a country says that, you know, the lockdown doesn't work, don't worry about the lockdown, quit whining about the virus, then there's a substantial amount of people that are supporters of that person, or even that are apolitical that might not take it as seriously, you know what I mean? And, and go out and, um, and flaunt the restrictions or whatever. But it's just been terrible to see. I, I've been hearing more and more of this in the news about this. I remember a couple months reading something that they said that Brazil hasn't gotten too bad yet, but it's going to if they if Bolsonaro doesn't make changes or um, if they didn't implement stricter lockdowns or whatever. And um, I don't know, like I said, I don't want to I don't want to speak too broadly on it because I don't know much about Brazil and stuff like that. But I think that's just terrible to see. I mean, you're a world leader of um, I believe Brazil is the biggest country in South America. So it's it's terrible to see that. So to kind of give more information about this, this is all from CNN, by the way. Brazil has recorded roughly 24% of all coronavirus deaths worldwide over the past two weeks, according to JHU data. So, and apparently not even, there's this new COVID-19 variant called P1 that is continuing, continuing to rip through the country as experts agree is more contagious and potentially produces more severe illnesses than previous strains that we've seen. So of the point of Brazil's 26 states plus its federal district, only one or two on any given day have ICU occupancy rates below 80%. More than half are above the 90% range, which means if the healthcare systems haven't collapsed already, they are at a risk of doing so. Healthcare systems have been have been with patients that are no longer adequately taken care of due to critical lack of space and supply. So they're also losing the supplies that they need to take care of these patients. There's it's just horrible. Like I can't even phantom how horrible the response has been in Brazil. I was gonna say, uh, if if they if they keep going over 90% capacity too, it's going to, what's going to happen is what happened in certain parts of the country here where people were getting care in parking lots. Uh, they, they had no room to, you know, the doctors then have to choose who has the best chance to live, who has the best chance to make it and, and give that care, decide to give that care to someone over someone else. So I, I think that's just a, a terrible situation. Like I said, I, I know that a sizable amount of Brazilians are, are ready in 2022 to get them out of there. But um, until then, I mean, there's going to be damage done until then, unfortunately. Uh, I just don't understand why. Like, I, I don't understand the mindset of why anyone would minimize this. Yeah. And there's also how, you know, here in the United States, we have had a big vaccine roll up because Biden has been pushing it. 
but the rollout in Brazil specifically has been very, very slow. So uh, last week, last Monday, uh, the U.S. and a lot of other countries, they, uh, they put some shan- uh, sanctions against two Chinese officials for what they called, and this is a direct quote, serious human rights abuses against Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region of China. Uh, these allies of the USA were in North America, Europe, and Asia. Uh, the European Union also announced sanctions. Uh, in a statement, the US, UK, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand said the evidence, including from the Chinese government's own documents, satellite imagery, and eyewitness testimony is overwhelming. China's extensive program of repression includes severe restrictions on religious freedoms, the use of forced labor, mass detention in internment camps, forced sterilizations, and the concerted destruction of Uyghur heritage. So th- these sanctions are against two uh, individuals in particular. The first individual, his name is Wang Junseng. He's a secretary of the party committee of the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. And the next person is Chen Mingguo. He's a director of the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau. Uh, so these shank- sanctions are issued by our Treasury Department, from what I understand. And uh, what they do to these two individuals is that all their property and interests in property that are in the United States or in the possession or control of US persons are blocked and will be reported to the Office of Foreign Assets and Control. In addition, any entities that they own directly or indirectly, 50% or more, uh, are also blocked. So they cannot really conduct any type of business or use any money or interest in the US right now. Um, They can't contribute any funds, goods, or services. Um, No one can provide services to them or anything to these two people. But in response to this, China announced they did. Uh, they were calling it tit for tat uh, sanctions. China announced their own sanctions against two Americans, a Canadian, and an entire rights advocacy body. Uh, the two individuals that were sanctioned that were Americans were um, they're members of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. There's the chairperson Gail Manchin and the vice chair Tony Perkins. Uh, a Canadian lawmaker named Michael Chong was also sanctioned. These individuals are now banned from entering China, Hong Kong, Macau, and any Chinese businesses and institutions can no longer do business with them. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State, he was the one that announced these sanctions last Monday. His name's Anthony Blinken. He called uh, the Chinese sanctions baseless and said they would only shine a harsher spotlight on the genocide in Xinjiang. And I thought that was uh, interesting because I, I haven't heard very many politicians refer to this yet as a genocide and, and and that's what it seems like to me and to most other people that are impartial i think they see this what they're doing to these people as a genocide um but i wanted to know what you guys make of this uh are we going to ex- expect any changes from this is it political posturing i i really don't even know what i think about it you know what i mean i i think it's a show of force in a way to say that we know what you're doing and we're we can sanction you in this way but with the way China reacted to it, it's like, okay, we're just going to throw sanctions back at you. So is it just going to be, you know, two toddlers screaming at each other or, or what? I, I'm interested in you guys' thought. Well, my, my first thought is a question, but these Chinese individuals that we put sanctions on, what kind of business would they be conducting in the U.S. to begin with? And like, how, how are these sanctions even going to make a difference? 
See, that's the thing that I, it took me forever digging through this to find out what exactly the sanctions did. Even the CNN article just said sanctions, 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 and it didn't say anything about what they did. So I had to dig to the Treasury Department to find out exactly under what law it does. And I guess it's, it's just asset freezing and stuff like that, because if you're, I guess if you're a big shot in government, you have assets around the world. So if they have U.S. money or something here or interests or maybe if they're um, involved in something that like they uh, get interest from or cash from in the U.S., those assets are now frozen completely out of them. But like I said, it's only two individuals, you know what I'm saying? So it's um, I, I don't know, you know, and, and they and they singled these people out uh, for. It doesn't say it in my notes, but it had it in CNN, but um, it, it wasn't very specific about why in particular these two people of, of, of anyone, you know what I mean? And, um, and, and in, in terms, China sanctions against the US and the, the, um, the Canadian, um, they, they were also kind of general, so, sort of like they just picked them at random because they dared to criticize them, I guess. So the Chinese individuals, are they like government officials or are they just like random citizens? No, they, they work for the Chinese uh, Communist Party as far as okay. I'm concerned. It's, it has both of their titles. So the first person, Wang Junseng, he's a secretary of the party committee of Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. Now, I don't know exactly what that job entails. It's a big fancy title, but it has party in it, which means he, he works for the state, you know? Um, and then the other person, Chen Mingguo, he's a director of the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau. And I assume that he has something to do with the checkpoints and probably arresting of people and stuff like that. It was hard to find info about these individuals because China's so secretive with this stuff, you know what I mean? And they're often not going to tell the truth if you can find the info anyway you're not going to get the truth anyway so um but i the way that i read it from all the stories that i read is that there are two high players in that region um that they probably share some responsibility for the response to what they're doing to these Uyghur people and um yeah but i but like i said it, it just seems so broad and kind of i don't want to say it's for show because i don't know everything but I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it makes more sense knowing that they are directly connected to the government. Um, so that's interesting. My other point is, because I know we talked about this last week and we talked about how someone needs to do something to try to stop this. And sanctions is often one way that, that governments do that. But the issue with sanctions, generally speaking, because you know when I first saw this in the news, I thought we had sanctions on China as a whole. <clears throat> not individuals. So I feel like sanctions typically end up punishing citizens as opposed to the government. They're the ones who don't get the resources. They don't get the things that they need because of these sanctions. And typically the wealthier and the government officials tend to do pretty okay. Um, so, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about how effective sanctions are, but yeah, it's really interesting that they chose these individuals as opposed to larger, larger sanctions on the country as a whole. Yeah, so while you two were talking, I quickly pulled up a CNBC article. Now this was from, this was published yesterday. So Saturday, March 27th, it was just published yesterday. 
the Chinese sanctions prohibit the officials from entering mainland China, Hong Kong, and Macau, and bans Chinese citizens and institutions from doing businesses, the officials, and conducting exchanges with the Human Rights Subcommittee. So that's what CNBC is saying. And the two officials targeted were due to their connection to arbitrary detention and severe physical abuse, among other serious human rights abuses. Yeah, I think um, I think I read that in one of the articles, and I, I forgot to put it in the notes. So they did, I guess, choose these two people for a specific reason. Um, but like I said, it it seems even with knowing that, you know what I mean? It, these are these two guys are hardly the only two that are complicit in this, and it, it seems like more of a, uh, I don't know, just like a, I don't want to call it a charade, you know what I mean? But I, I don't know what. Jillian said was interesting about sanctions, you know what I mean? Like, like the, uh, like our embargo on Cuba, who's that hurt more than anyone else hurts Cuban people. <laughs> they can't, you know, I mean, so I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I was interested what you guys thought about this because I looked up at, at stuff for this for a couple hours last night or, and, uh, and it, it just, everything seems so general and so vague, you know what I mean? That it, it I, I came away from it thinking that it was just, maybe um maybe the 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 new administration and stuff saying like we're going to be tough on you guys you know no yeah you make a great point it could be this kind of for show gesture to make it seem like someone's doing something and we, obviously we can't get into the minds of our administration um but it'll be interesting to see what this accomplishes if if anything my my thoughts are that putting sanctions on two individuals probably won't put a stop to genocide. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, this. They've been doing this in the open for years now. China. We talked about this last week, so we're not gonna get too in depth about this. But I don't think two sanctions against two individuals is gonna all of a sudden make them feel shame for what they're doing to these people. Um, but. I do think that the timing of these sanctions is, is interesting because in the news cycle a week or so ago, um, before this broke, we had uh, on all the major networks that Biden had a testy meeting or, or someone close to Biden, I might be misremembering wrong, had like a really testy meeting with a, a high ranking Chinese official and, and they said that, uh, you know, that the US was going to start being more tough on China and stuff like that. So I wonder if it's all theater. Or whatever you know I, I i i someone that knows more about international relations and stuff would uh probably be a good person to ask about this um in addition but i don't know just with how vague it is you know and and like you said sanctions on two individuals when a, an entire uh party government is doing this you know what i mean a government party is doing this is what does that really do in the long run you know it seems like all it did was make them mad because they just turned around and said, we're going to sanction you back. Like I said, it's like toddlers. This is something, this is, was just posted yesterday from CNN. This is straight from Hong Kong. The United States does not have the qualifications to speak to China. And this is from an article called China has unleashed the nationalist genie. Beijing may regret letting it out of the bottle. And so According to the CNN article, in recent days, China has leveled reciprocal sanctions against the United Kingdom and the European Union 
targeting lawmakers and academics, which it accused of maliciously spreading lies and disinformation regarding Beijing's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. One thing um, I wanted to add to this, though, that that may eventually lead to some changes, is that it, is that it, it wasn't just the U.S., like Natalia was just talking about, that, that put sanctions against China. A lot of big countries and a lot of allied countries that are allied to the U.S., it, I mean, the whole European Union condemned China here. And I, I can't remember something in the last couple of years. I know that we have this, you know, uh, complicated relationship with China. Um, but I can't remember anything in the last year, uh, couple of years where there was this many people that were willing to, or this many countries that were willing to all come together as one and say, like, we know what you're doing. You know what I mean? It's shameful. We're willing to sanction you. Um, but like I said, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just cynical, but I don't know if, if, is it going to go any further than this? You know, I, I know that the U.S., they profit off the relationship with China and China profits off our relationship with them. You know what I mean? It's, it's this weird, you know, tightrope that you have to walk, you know? Um, so I, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's not, it's so simple. We'll have to see what happens. Yeah. I, I was going to say it, it, maybe we'll have to see what happens in the coming weeks. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if something else broke with this, this week, maybe possibly, but um, yeah, I mean, We'll have to see. Uh, but this week, Derek Chauvin, the cop that killed George Floyd, he he goes on trial starting tomorrow. We're recording this on a Sunday. So uh, by the time this goes out, that trial will, trial will have started. Um, and that's sure to probably grab a ton of headlines. And um, maybe we'll learn some more stuff about this China stuff this week. So I guess we are wrapping up up here. My name is Natalia. Thank you for listening to the You Press Play podcast. And we'll see you guys here next week for more news and more information.